morning. Before we dive in this morning to the sermon, I want to just take a moment to acknowledge our veterans. As you know, Thursday, I think, was Veterans Day, and we just want to take a minute. For those of you who don't have to make sure we're all on the same page, some people might be so young they know what a veteran is, uh, maybe. Uh, but veterans are, are people who served uh, present or past in the armed forces and we take a time once a year as a country just to thank them. So if you are part of the uh, uh, military, uh, as I say, uh, present or past serving, if you'd stand, we just want to acknowledge you and say a thank you to you this morning. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you. You know, the very heart of the gospel message as was said by that opening video, right? Those verses that was shared, John chapter 20. The very heart of the gospel message is God's love, right? That's pretty straightforward. The reason God sent Jesus into the world and the reason Jesus sent us into the world as the Father hath sent me, so I am sending you, is because of God's love for people. That's foundational to the Bible, right? That's the reason, the motivation behind it all is God's love for people. But unless that love, it's part of my sermon this morning, is at the center of your being, and I have to keep it there, how do I do that? It's the Christian life. But unless that love, right, is at the center of your being, the Christian life and the Christian mission, what we're talking about this month, the Christian life and the Christian mission can seem like a dream and an impossibility. So even if we go to church, we're sort of Christians if we are, but sometimes we ask ourselves, when we think about what the Christian life says it should be, what should it be like to live my life in union with God and the Holy Spirit and the, and the finished work of Jesus? You know, it says love and joy and peace and, and, and goodness and faith. And, and you know, uh, the, does the Christian life, what it says about it, and what the, Christian, the Bible says about the Christian mission, sometimes we can say to ourselves, if we're honest, it seems like a dream. Like we're talking about a fairy tale or an impossibility. Unless the love of God is at the center of your being, that would be the case. But, point of my sermon this morning, if that love captures your heart, right, captures my heart, it can, can uh, turn you into someone, turn me into someone who actually loves other people like God loves you. This is the absolute challenge of the Christian life. That I could actually, never perfectly, but that I <clears throat> could actually love other people. Not just people that like me and look like me or vote like me or in my neighborhood or, you know what I'm trying to say. But I can love all people in the same way, in the same manner, with the same compassion, with the same attitude with the same genuineness often with the same level of sacrifice in the way that God has loved me if you want to know what the purpose of life is that's it and it's, it's why life is hard okay now we're going to look at a passage this morning um, that really answers this question you have a copy of the bible the title of the sermon is love your neighbor in other words how is it how can God's love Get a hold of my heart so that I can love like he does. This is the point of this sermon called Love Your Neighbor. Familiar verses of scripture, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. You say, why are we doing, looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan in a missions 
conference of a kind. Because as I just got done saying, unless the love of God captures your heart and stays there, missions is a waste of time. You'll never get there, whether it's your next door neighbor or the far corners of the earth. So love your neighbor, Luke 10, 25 to 37, follow along as I read these familiar words. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. What's an expert in the law? Not someone, you know, courthouse, but an expert in the Old Testament. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Excellent question if you're talking to someone like Jesus. What is written in the law? He replied, that's your expertise. I'm a Bible believer, Jesus says. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? If I'm going to actually do this and live, help me understand. Make it doable for me. Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Think about 17 miles. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, what's the difference between a priest and a Levite? They're both, uh, in a manner, speaking of the same tribe, but one has a more narrow responsibility. The Levites were sort of the helpers of the priests. A Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by the other side. So they're religious professionals, so to speak. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three, story over, question, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Speaking of the Good Samaritan, I guess, or the Samaritan. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, very quickly, it's important when you read the Bible, this case too, that you have the, 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 this very, very famous prayer. It's so famous that, you know, even if you never went to church, you, you know the story. It's almost like, you know, there's a few of those like that. So you have to back up and say, don't let your familiarity with the story overwhelm for you the point. What's the context? Very unimportant you understand the context of this story that we just read. The context is Jesus and his disciples. You have to go back one chapter for this. They're on this journey. It's called, in sort of Bible speak, the travel log. In the travel log, it's only in, outlined in Luke's gospel, that from chapter 9 to chapter 19, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, which is a geographical location. He's in Galilee to the north. He's going south, you know, uh, you know, however many weeks it takes to do that. And it's basically, his, they don't know this, it's his last time he's going. He knows, they don't know, that I'm going this last time from north to south. When I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified. My life is going to meet its purpose right here. But in this journey, this last journey together called the travelogue, it's not only a geographical journey, it's an emotional journey, it's a spiritual journey. It's, you might say it's a calling to question of the disciples of whether or not they really understand what it means 
to be a follower of Jesus. And the same was true for you and the same is true for me. And so there's three really important things, I'm gonna call them three, that Jesus wants to communicate. Using this religious scholar as a foil, right? But he wants to communicate to his disciples then and now. Number one is this. Remember, they're, they're, they're just like you and I. They're, they're believers, they're on their way, but they're not complete. And he wants them to understand a few things before they fully embrace this thing called being a Christian. Having the right answers does not mean that you know God. Having the right answers does not mean that you or I know. What a better person to to make that point than an expert in the law. In other words, a religious scholar. Someone who knew the Bible very, very well. Now, this scholar likely, we know his motives are sort of imperfect, right? On one occasion, actually, law stood up to test Jesus, and, and as they should, right? Don't always think uh, everything's, a, uh, these, these are paper characters. They have no, you know, one-dimensional characters. They should have. Jesus was calling to question. Jesus was calling a lot of things out in his ministry. Now we're at the end of his ministry. He'd, he'd hear miracles. He'd cleanse the temple. He'd, he'd talk tough about what it means to be a follower of God, of the God of the Old Testament. So they should test him. Is this guy for real? What's he all about? Is he, why is he stirring the pot? He's, he's, he's causing some disruption in Jerusalem and with the Jewish people. So he's wanting to test him, and he expects Jesus, one would think, to do what Jesus by then had done to this question. What must I do to have eternal life? Well, Jesus would naturally say to that question, you might think, believe on me and you'll be saved. Right? It's kind of what you and I would say. If someone came to me in a coffee shop or anywhere, a restaurant, and said, what must I do in their own words to have eternal life? I wouldn't say, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Leviticus chapter 19. I probably wouldn't say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Those are good, that's good advice, but I wouldn't say that. That's probably what this guy thought Jesus was going to say, so he, maybe he thought, well, I'm going to trap Jesus, because I'm, I'm going to show that Jesus is someone who is dismissive of the old covenant, because that was the word on the street, that Jesus is dismissive of the Bible. He's not a serious Bible. But Jesus doesn't do that. He treats all of us as individuals. And he's looking at, he's, he's trying to respond to this man, but also teach his disciples something. Instead of pointing away from it, he points to the law. Contrary to popular opinion, I'm talking about in this day, Jesus, no one took the Bible more seriously than Jesus did. But see, here's what Jesus says to him. I love this. What is written in the law? First question, what does the Bible have to say? But then the second question is the one that you and I need even more. How do you read it? Or the second comment. How do you read it? Right? That's really the reason, uh, the, the really, the more important question for many of us. Right? Maybe you read the Bible. I hope that you do. We talk about that a lot. But do, how do you read it? Do you understand what it means? Do you see it through the lens of the gospel? Is it changing your life? Because having the right answers, it's not a bad thing. I, want, I believe in the right answers. I believe that, the, in, that we need to know the word of God. But having the right answers, as this guy did, does not mean that you know God. Now, he answers this, this legal scholar with the, with, the, with the right answer. 
right? You've answered correctly. In fact, Jesus will answer the same way himself. You're a note taker in Matthew 22. They ask Jesus the same questions. This is common knowledge. If you were someone who was a, an insider, you, if anyone asked you this question, Jesus himself quoted Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. He said, in, in his own uh, answer to this question, he said, on this the great commandment, it's called, hang all the law and the prophets. Everything, if you want to boil it all down to what does all the, the, the Old Testament mean, the Old Covenant, it boils down right here. Right answer. It's called the great commandment. But what's interesting is what he says in verse 28, right? Uh, you have answered correctly, Jesus said. Right answer. Now watch this. Do this and you will live. I remember the first time I read that, you know, I don't, or, or second or third time or fourth time as a young Christian, I didn't want to admit it, but I thought, this doesn't make sense to me. This doesn't sound like the way I'd answer this question. Whoa, I thought I'm saved by faith in, in Jesus Christ. Jesus just said to this man, he, this, this wasn't a Bible quiz, that he had a very specific question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? Well, John 3, 16 is the verse I might go to, right? Or you might go to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, faith, has eternal life. But there's nothing here in verse 27 that says anything about the forgiveness of sin, says anything about the, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the death of Jesus, nothing about the resurrection of Jesus. None of those things are here. Jesus, but so what does Jesus do? Is this a different gospel? No. Be, listen to what Jesus says. You have answered correctly. He doesn't say, believe in this and you will live. Believe that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart. Believe that to love your neighbor as yourself is, is what the Bible teaches. He says, do this and you will live. Okay? Jesus is saying, listen, there is another way to God. In a manner of speaking. What is eternal life? Eternal life it does not mean gone on and on and on and on, what we call everlasting life. They're, they're, they're overlapping ideas. It does mean it's, it's a life that doesn't end. But eternal life fundamentally, if you do a Bible study, is a quality of life. It's a quality of life. The life of the new age come into the present in the life of Jesus. It's a quality of life that's able to love people who don't love you back, to withstand criticism uh, to, 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 the, to, the, to a deep level, to have compassion on people, to live in a certain way, to be an expression of the fruits of the Spirit, that my life, going to work, going to, uh, you know, living in my home, living with my family, living with my neighbors, dealing with everyday life, I exemplify the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, uh, uh, gentleness, uh, self-control. This is what everlasting, eternal life Life is and what Jesus is saying is you and I have naturally associated it with believing the gospel because that's how it's taught in the New Testament but what Jesus is saying is listen if you do this if you can actually love the Lord your God with all your heart your strength your soul and your mind and love your neighbors yourself you can have eternal life because you'll be living eternal life the problem is of course this is the point no one having the right answer is does not mean that you know God, is that nobody can do that. See? The man wanted to justify himself. And what I want to say to all of us here, Christians and non-Christians, is it's impossible to do this. Right? I cannot, I have not lived five minutes of my life 
and had the capacity to love God with all my heart, all my mind, all my strength, all my soul. I've not done that for five minutes, okay? I aspire to do that, and nor have I lived a day in my life where I have loved my neighbor, we'll get to that in a minute, who it is, as God has loved me. You and I will never get anywhere in the Christian life doesn't mean you can't be a Christian, but you'll never get anywhere in the Christian life. I'll never be able to make the smallest of difference in anyone else's life, hear him, I send me, unless I understand the nature of my own salvation, unless the love of God captures my imagination, unless I do what I do because of the love of God. Okay, that's what Jesus is trying to say to this man. A lifetime of good works will not lead to your justification. He wanted to justify himself. You can't do that. You can't do that. And if you've been trying to live your life, Christian or non-Christian, say, well, this is what I thought it was about. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to do what the Bible says I should do. Do this and you shall live. And if you found yourself unsuccessful, you found yourself the Christian life has become more and more, seems like a dream and an impossibility, this is why. So let me stop right here in this sermon. Heads bowed and eyes closed just for a minute. I don't know anybody's background in this room, or I don't know many, I should say. If you'd say, Rob, pastor, I've been to church 10 times or 1,000, but I always thought what it meant to be a Christian was that I try my best to do what the Bible says I should do, but I've not been successful. But I'm understanding in this moment that no one can justify themselves through their good works, that God so loved the world that he gave We receive God's grace. That's the only way to become a son and daughter of God. To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons and daughters of God. If you are that person, I would encourage you right now in the quiet of your own heart to pray this simple prayer. God, thank you for sending Jesus to do what I couldn't do, to live a perfect life not only in his execution of the Old Testament law, but he lived a life that loved his father with all his heart, all his soul, all his strength, all his mind, and he loved other people the way he was loved. And he did that for me. And I can simply exchange my bad record, my imperfect record, my sinfulness for his righteousness by faith and receive the forgiveness of sins. I ask for that Please forgive me of my sins because of what Jesus did. And if you prayed that prayer right now, heads bowed, eyes closed, I'd encourage you to slip your hand up in this room. I just want to see it so I can thank you across the auditorium. Heads up. (laughs) Okay. Having the right answers does not mean that you know God. But listen, that's not just true for non-Christians. It's true for Christians too. Because unless the love of God is at the center of my heart and center of my being, right, the gospel, I'm, I'm, bringing, I'm working in it every day, then it's also the motivation for ministry. Or there's a lot of people doing what I do or what you do as everyday Christians, as we all are, who are serving God, but they think they're earning favor with God. They think they're earning merits with God. That's not how it works. Right? The only way you're going to serve the, God's purpose for your life is to know his love. Second thing, main point of the parable, Everyone is your neighbor. That's what Jesus is trying to say. It's interesting. Back to context, right? How much we would we we have 
how 2,000 years of this very, very powerful story has completely turned upside down what it meant in its original context. Okay? When you, and if I, if I was in a mall right now and do interviewing people and say, I'm going to say something, tell me what's the first thing you think of Good Samaritan, what would they say? What? What's a Good Samaritan? Sherry? Someone that does good things? Right? I mean, in other words, a Good Samaritan, who would, raise your hand if you'd like to be considered a Good Samaritan. Okay, maybe that was an easier way to do it. In other words, a Good Samaritan is a compliment. But when this original parable was given, friends, let me say this, it was deeply offensive, okay? Jesus was being deeply offensive. He was attempting to define the true meaning of loving your neighbor, which didn't necessarily mean the person living next door to you. He's quoting an Old Testament verse, Leviticus 19. He's trying to define the true meaning of loving your neighbor, in doing that, I should say, he turns the basis of contemporary Jewish society on its head. Okay? The idea of a good Samaritan in Jesus' day was a contradiction of terms. Okay? It's a contradiction of terms. I don't know what would be a good example. You know, you have somebody comes over to Thanksgiving dinner. You know, the, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the, you know, and they don't really know what the context, and they tell some crazy story about whatever it is, politics or, or race or something, and you're always sitting there, oh my gosh. They just radically offended everyone at this table and they don't realize it. Okay, that's what's going on here. And, but although Jesus is doing it on purpose. The idea of a good Samaritan made no sense. Jesus picks the Samaritan He's making up a story. He has, the, he has the ability to do this. Jesus picks the Samaritan as the hero of the story. But in most eyes, not only in Jewish, the Jews, but the disciples, the Samaritan was a non-neighbor. He was someone, or they were someone, who would not even be on the list of people that would be loved. How do I know that? If you're a note taker. Even the disciples. The end of chapter 9. I think it's verse 54. On this travelogue, Jesus is going north to south. They stop at Samaria. One chapter earlier. The Samaritans are unhappy because Jews and Samaritans had antagonism. And they say to the disciples, leave town. Get out of here. We don't want anything to do with Jesus. And you know what the disciples, James and John, say? This is not anybody's refrigerator, I promise you. This is what they say. The two chief disciples, the inner circle, Lord, should we Call down fire from heaven and burn these people out. <laughs> Luke 9.54. Because they wouldn't have said that to, for, other, for, for bad behavior Jewish people, but for Samaritans, that's what they would say. Okay? Why is that? Well, we don't have a lot of time, but if you're a note taker, 2 Kings 17. And 2 Kings 17 is the history behind the Jewish-Samaritan conflict. King, the Syrians came in 700 years earlier, conquered ancient Israel, moved and depopulated their people into other countries, and then they repopulated Israel with people they conquered from other nations. All mentioned in 2 Kings 17. If you're reading 365 with us, we just read it a week or two ago. They bring those people in there to break the back of the Jewish nation that used to live there. And for 700 years... These people groups lived in ancient Israel, 700 years, and they intermarried and intermingled with some 
Jews that had stayed there, and they were these people group called the Samaritans, that by the time Jesus shows up, the purists that lived in, around Jerusalem called Judea, the southern kingdom, they despised these people. They were everything that they believed in, they represented the opposite, so much so that they wouldn't even walk in their, they would walk around their territory. Okay? That's the background. And when Jesus tells this story, he's saying, listen, in the kingdom of God, everybody's your neighbor, including them. And where most people are going to find their identification, why is this story so offensive? Because the two people that see the man lying in the middle of the road, who do what Jesus is trying to say is not the right kind of behavior, which is walk by and do nothing. They both, the Levites saw him, the, the, the priests saw him, but they passed by on the other side. Jesus is saying, that's probably what you do. John, James, Peter, Rob, okay? That's what you do. But if you're going to follow me, if you want to make this journey all the way to Jerusalem, if you want to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus, if you want to enter into a life-changing relationship with Jesus, if you want to go the full journey, okay, you're going to have to love people the way that I love you and not pass by. Okay, this is the challenge. And what Jesus is trying to say is, it's a new, there's a new category in the kingdom of God. Everybody's your neighbor. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what their background is. I don't care what their politics is. I don't care what country they're from. Every single one of them is your neighbor. And you're not only going to need to acknowledge it, you need to move toward them in love. And if you can't do that, then you're not a Christian. Really. Think about that. It's powerful. Powerful. Powerful thing. Last Sunday, good, just a quick example. Ken and Lisa Kennedy, many of you know them, a couple from our church, waiting for me out uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the lobby, and they say, we want to introduce you to somebody. Young girl named Alina. 21-year-old girl who had only been in Rochester for a month. Before that, she lived in Ukraine, really near the, near the, um, uh, the border with Russia. And uh, she's the only daughter of this family. And by the, you know, the powers that be, the, the, the systems and that be, she was the only one of her family allowed to find her way and to come into the United States. She ends up in all places of Rochester, New York. She ends up in Browncroft Community Church just through some random uh, neighbor. That she didn't even, she, the person didn't even come to church. They just dropped her off. And then that Sunday, Jason just happened to do one of these, you know. Uh, we're going to take a minute and worship and just say hello to somebody next to you if you were here a month ago and tell them what you're thankful for. This is what happened. As you know, so they told me the whole story. I'm just giving it to you in a minute here. As you know, Alina arrived in Rochester, with Lisa Kennedy, six weeks ago. Found her way to Browncroft for the first time in late October. That morning, we were sitting in our usual seats. When Jason asked us to reach out to someone we didn't know and share what we were grateful for. Alina just appeared out of nowhere. She seemed so nervous and we could sense it was a huge leap of faith for her to trust us and our church as a safe place. She told us later she had a panic attack and wanted to run out of the church at having to share something so personal with a stranger. All the, all the only question was only, what are you thankful for, right? We also learned that she'd gotten a ride to church but had no way to get home. And that's how simple it was. Three strangers spent five minutes in community. We shared what we were grateful for and then, and then gave her a ride home. We have been together almost every day since then. Too much to say. 
They cooked her meals. They listened to her very heart-wrenching story. They, she wanted her driver's license. They spent hours and hours and hours teaching her how to do K-turns and on and on and on. It's hard to imagine how someone could change your life after only 10 days. This is Lisa and Ken talking about what, how that, this young girl changed her life. Imagine what it is for this young girl. But we have been blessed by our brief friendship and we have enjoyed showing her around Rochester, trying to provide distraction from her profound sadness and loss. We go through season after season, never fully knowing what the harvest will bring, but it is truly a gift from God when you see firsthand how the fruits appear right before your very eyes. What I so loved mostly about this story, it's a great story, is how simple it was. Even Jesus' story, Jesus, this is a made-up story. He doesn't go, well, some people got in an airplane and they, they responded to the great call on late-night television and, you know, whatever. No, he said, listen, there's a simple road. It's between, you know, X and Y and people travel it all the time. And, and priests go down it and the, this person goes down it and everybody goes down it and someone was half-dead person in the middle of the road, okay? It's just about seeing what's in front of you and deciding to do something about it, right? That's what Lisa and Ken did. And the beauty of this story is, I did meet Alina. We prayed, and she was, you would have thought they were best friends after just, a, you know, almost family members. She has a story to tell, a tremendous gratitude. But not only was she blessed, so, so was Ken and Lisa. When they said goodbye to her, she ended up moving to Boston just uh, last week. To, she has some family or friends there. It was like they were saying goodbye to their daughter, okay? That's how powerful it was. Jesus, what is this parable about? Listen, everyone is your neighbor. When you leave out this sanctuary today, let me tell you, everyone is your neighbor. Everyone. There's nobody off the list. The people that you don't like, the people that don't like you, the people that don't like Jesus, everyone is on the list. You're not only supposed to see them, but you're supposed to do something about it. Loving your neighbor comes with a cost, okay? Of course, Jesus made this story up, but by the end, by verse 36, of course, he does what he often does with you. He changes the whole question. It's no longer about who's my neighbor. It's about what kind of neighbor are you, right? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor? That's what Jesus wants to know. He's already saying, listen, everyone's your neighbor. Now, what kind of neighbor are you? The question, listen carefully, is not who's qualified to be loved. That's what the guy wanted to know. Who's my neighbor? It's, am I the kind of person who loves in an unqualified way? Wow. Even Jesus said this in another, another part of the Bible. He said, listen, if you love those who love you, what difference does that make? If you love people that vote like you, that look like you, that think like you, that hang like you, that are from your group, that's natural. We under, that doesn't, no one's saying don't do that, but he's saying that even, he said, even sinners do that. Even the mafia does that. I mean, that's kind of what Jesus said. Like, everybody does that. But if you want to be a Christian, okay, what a Christian means is you've been so transformed by the love of God. I mean, it's, it's shaken your life. It's turned you upside down. 
It satisfied the deepest needs that you have in your heart for forgiveness, for, for feeling loved, so much so that it overflows. And you now can see the world in a different way. And instead of looking at the world, always trying to manage your fears, manage your anxieties, manage your, your, your you know, trying to control everything, you're, you're freed to move toward people, whoever they are, and to love them in a way that costs you something. And it's only when it costs you something, here's the irony, the secret at the heart of the Christian life, that you find the joy at Ken and Lisa Expressed, see? We're all looking for joy, but yet we're, we're, we're not doing what joy requires, right? That's what Jesus is trying to say in this very, very powerful story. He went to him, bandaged his wounds. He's, it's over the top, but it's a story. Think about it. The priest and the Levite, the good guys, do one of these, right? You know what I mean? Think about it. That's a metaphor for what you and I do probably most days of our lives. We've never been to this or that part of town. We love our neighbors, especially the Christian ones. You know, I mean, but the other ones, we don't even talk to them. He went and bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, then put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of the next day. Keeps going on. He took two denarii, a lot of money in this culture, gave them to the innkeeper, says, listen, look after this man, who I don't even know him. And when I return, Next week, next year, I reimburse you for any expense you may have. Here's the irony of ironies in this passage. Is if, this, if this wasn't offensive already, Jesus says, listen. Because remember, all stories, good literature, you're supposed to identify. You're seeing yourself, right? That's why you read good literature. You're trying to learn, trying to understand human nature, trying to understand the nature of life. Same with the Bible. That's why the Bible, two-thirds of the Bible is written in stories, right? This is how we learn. And Jesus says, you have to start to see that most of you, ladies and gentlemen, friends, disciples, you're the priest and the Levite. Get over it. Be honest with yourself. Start there. But let me say something else because if you're going to follow me, you need to know who I am. Let me tell you, I'm going to put myself in the story Jesus is saying. You know who I am? Wait for it. I know you don't want to hear it. I'm the good Samaritan. The person you despised, the thing that you think doesn't make any sense. These two words don't belong together. These are the people we called out fire from. These are the wrong kind of people on the wrong kind of the tracks, the wrong kind of whatever. Everything about them is wrong and they don't, even, they don't make the list of people to love. I'm from them. I'm the ultimate outsider. And I came from heaven to earth. And let me tell you where you really belong in the story. If you guys have ears to ear, if you're still with me, let me tell you, yes, you're the priest and the Levite, but even more than that, you're the half dead man or woman in the road. That's who you are. You're barely, you're, you, Ephesians 2, 1, dead in trespasses and sins. You're the half-dead person in the road. And I came as the ultimate outsider. He came unto his own, his own received him not, John 1, 11. The world basically said to Jesus Christ, no, thank you. We're not interested in you. He said, okay, I'm going to love you anyway. And he kissed you awake, and he kissed me awake. You're the dead person in the middle of the road. I'm the dead person in the middle of the road. Once that love captures your imagination, once that love captures your heart, if it has, and if you nurture it, only then and only then are you able, am I able to actually move outside of my circumscribed little life and my circumscribed little street and the things that I do, hanging out with the people that are like me, and actually move towards people, not just in Africa, yes, not just in Asia, yes, not just in Timbuktu, but people on my street, 
who vote a different way than I do, people on my street who don't know anything about Jesus, people that snub their nose at me or don't like me or aren't like me, it doesn't matter, right? That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Everyone is your neighbor in loving like, loving your neighbor comes at a cost. We live in a culture, last comments, we live in a culture where more and more people are encouraged to keep their opinions, I mean, their true opinions, I'm not talking about social media type, you know, things that we just say and don't stand up to, to keep our opinions to ourselves and to play it safe. Right? Nobody wants to say anything that's going to get them in any trouble. But that's not what a good Samaritan is. A good Samaritan is not a gentle do-gooder, but a courageous person who's willing to go against the prejudices of the culture and love other people in a way that costs you something. Okay? Cost you something. That's what Jesus is trying to say in his over-the-top illustration of this person. As I said last week, if you want momentary happiness, serve yourself. If you want lasting happiness, that's what Ken and Lisa figured out, you need to serve someone else. And it'll cost you something. But you love other people the way God loves you. Amen? All right, let me say a couple things and we're done. Just reiterating what you already heard this morning. Number one is, guys, uh, the sermon has only so much value, right? Hopefully it's some truth and some inspiration. Go and do likewise. It's about what you're gonna do. And some of you are already doing it. Keep on keeping on serving. But others of you aren't, and that's the purpose of this focused time. So there's a couple things you can do. Go to the, take 20, 30 steps and go into the, to the cafe and meet a few missionary partners and say hello. Take their prayer card. More importantly, come Tuesday night. Okay? The website has all the details. Come Tuesday night. It's not just Warren and, and, and Barbara, his mom, but other three or four or five other partners will be here so you can see you, your small group, your family. Is there an opportunity locally that you can get involved in? where you can begin to love your neighbor, right, in tangible ways. Family on the 16th, Wednesday, there's a family serve experience, okay, set up for families. Sometimes you can do this with your kids. You have kids. And then next Sunday, we'll say this again, after both services, there will be an opportunity to um, hear in the gym about some international opportunities, for 2023. Amen? Okay. Let me say one last thing. Big announcement. Drum roll, please. We don't have one. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead. I mentioned a couple weeks ago about the Wolof Project. Some of you don't know about it because you might not have been here. It's a project, part of the Send Me uh, Outreach, Global Outreach Experience, where we're trying to raise some funds to send to our missionary partners uh, uh, Feluin and um, Amalik Fall. If you don't know those names, they were in a video. They're on our website. They've been partners for many, many years. Uh, uh, they're Wolof believers. What is the Wolof? It's a unreached people group in Senegal, West Africa. And we want to send this race of money to help them finish a discipleship center and to begin a kind of university housing center all used to help point people to Christ. The goal is 50000 What I told you last Sunday, I think, was we were at about 10 and change. 
after about 70 givers total, so I think it's about 250, we got up to 20,000. Um, and just recently, a couple days ago, that 20,000, which represent very you know, good, uh, modest gifts, some one individual or one set of individuals, let's say a single gift of $20,000, okay? Now there's $40,000. So, uh, um, so uh, the, the, um, the goal, the hope is that we finish this by next week, okay? Another, but you'd say, well, gee, Rob, that's, what if we get more? They, they're, we're only doing our part. They actually need more, so there will be no problem if we overdo it. Amen? All right, so let me just say have a great Sunday. If you're a guest with us, Please not only go say hello to our missionary friends, but stop by this table on the way out and say and grab a gift. We want to know that you're here. Have a great Sunday. See you next week.